Last week, as we began our study in Numbers 15, I shared with you this story of how my parents would uh, reassure me after I had uh, sinned and done wrong. Um, as a child, they would confront me in my sin, but they would also reassure me of their love for me. And this week, I want to remind you of a biblical story that follows along similar lines, or at least has similar themes in it. You remember the story of Peter and his denial of Jesus being Jesus' disciple. He denied being Jesus' disciple three times. And do you remember what Jesus did after his resurrection from the grave? Do you remember his conversation with Peter? In John's Gospel, in John chapter 21, Jesus restored Peter. And he reassured Peter that he would be used to bring God glory. Jesus said to Peter, Peter, do you love me? Feed my sheep. Do you see what is coming out of Jesus' mouth with those words? Do you love me? Tend my sheep. Serve my sheep. Jesus is reassuring Peter that he will be used for his glory. Which means that he loves him and has a relationship with him and cares about him and, and is not casting him off. In spite of Peter's failures and denials, Jesus was committed to using Peter to bring himself glory and his sheep good. This doesn't mean that Peter's past was inconsequential, but it also doesn't mean that Peter's past was insurmountable. Every Christian here today should appreciate that conversation in John 21 between Jesus and Peter. Each and every one of us has sinned against God, and yet He intends to use each and every believer to bring Him glory. Christian, just like Peter, Jesus has redeemed your past. Just like Peter, He wishes to use you in the present to bring Him glory. Christian, if you feel as though your past and perhaps even your present is too dark, too filled with sin for Jesus to use, then you're listening to the lies of the evil one. If you feel as though your sin stretches on and on and on and on, then you're right. You have correctly perceived your sin. But, if you think that God cannot use you, that He does not love you, and that you do not belong to Him, then you have not correctly perceived God's grace. In the words of a, a hymn we sing, His grace is greater than all of our sin. Take comfort encouragement and strength from how Jesus was pleased to use Peter. His sin was great. He denied the Savior. And God's grace was greater still. And, and this is what we continue to think about in Numbers 15. As we look at God's grace toward the people of Israel just after they had rebelled against Him. Here the Lord continues to say to His people, to the people of Israel, I love you, and you belong to me. If you haven't done so, let me encourage you to go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Numbers 15. This morning, as I said, we're especially looking at the last portion of this chapter. We're going to look at especially Numbers 15, verses 30 to 41. And if you're following along one of the Bibles provided, you should be able to find the passage on page 124. 124. And while you're turning there, let me just kind of remind you of, of where we've been so far in the book of Numbers, what we've studied. Numbers opens with the people of Israel preparing for a journey through the wilderness in the hopes of making their way to the land that the Lord promised to give Abraham and his offspring. We've studied Israel's preparations for that journey. We've seen them set out on their journey. We've seen them make it to the edge of the promised land. They've gotten right up to the edge. They send 12 spies in. 10 spies come back with a bad report. And they lead the people of Israel in rebellion 
against God. They give a, a bad report. And the people of Israel refuse to enter the promised land. It's quite a startling, surprising decision by the people of Israel because that was the whole reason for their journey through the wilderness. And in response to Israel's rebellion, the Lord promised that He would give Israel what they asked for when they rebelled against Him. They asked to go back to Egypt, and so the Lord said, that's fine, go ahead and set out by the way of the Red Sea. Go ahead and start making your way toward Egypt. And the Lord sent them out to wander. And the people of Israel kind of hesitated and thought, you know what, on second thought, let's go ahead and try and make it into the promised land. And so they try and they go up and they go into the hill country and they're attacked and they're defeated. We learn that they're pursued and their wandering begins on that note. And in the storyline of Numbers, we have moved far from the hope of entering the promised land, the hope with which the book opened, to now running away from the land in defeat and wandering. Israel's rebellion against the command of the Lord has, has cast a long shadow into their future. A 40-year shadow. And this is the setting in which Numbers chapter 15 opened, which we began to study last week. What would God say next in response to this rebellious people? Well, essentially, as we learned from the first part of Numbers 15 last week, the Lord gave the people of Israel a word of reassurance. And I want us to begin our study this morning by actually recapping that word of reassurance. Because if we were to really begin at verse 30, take a look at Numbers 15, verse 30, and see where it begins. But anyone who does anything with a high hand. Now that's kind of an awkward beginning, frankly. So I want to try and smooth over that transition. There's a contrast that's taking place with those words as to what has gone before. So I want us to remember what has gone before. So this is the first point of the sermon for those of you who are taking notes. A recap of God's word of reassurance. This is a recap of God's word of reassurance. So let me just remind us of what took place in those first 29 verses of Numbers 15. Numbers 15 begins with the Lord reassuring His people that He will keep His promises to Abraham, that He will, in spite of their rebellion, bring the people of Israel into the Promised Land. We see that in verses 1 and 2. Take a look at those verses, the beginning of Numbers 15. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land, you are to inhabit, which I am giving you. God wants Moses to reassure the people of Israel of His faithfulness and His commitment to them even in the face of their faithlessness. Now notice in verse 2, it's not a matter of if, it's only a matter of when. In verse 2, we also see the Lord promised that this land, it's not something the people of Israel can earn or take with their own hands, but it's a, a gift that God is graciously pleased to give them, which I am giving you. That's what the Lord said to His people. Then in verses 3 to 16, we see that God continues to reassure His people by giving them laws. These laws are given to that younger generation who's going to survive this 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. And in that light, they are a reassurance to that younger generation. Yes, while these are laws that they will be expected to keep, they are forward-looking. They, they are cast in this light. When you come into the promised land, do these things. It's a word of reassurance. You're going to make it. You're going to make it through the wilderness. But not only that, you're not only going to make it through the wilderness, you're going to have all these bulls and goats and lambs to sacrifice and give praise with. You're going to come into the promised land. You're going to have grain and wine and oil. When we studied these verses last week, we also noticed that through these God's laws, through these laws, God was reassuring His people that He wanted to have a relationship with them. He was not casting them off in the face of their rebellion. He said he was, he was drawing them in. He is saying to His people, Come to Me, worship, and rejoice. And these laws not only implied an invitation for the people of Israel, but also for those who were not ethnically Jewish to come to God and rejoice. That is why there was one law for both native and sojourner. God was reminding His people that the blessing of knowing Him was to extend beyond them. 
verses 17 to 21 double down on the reassurance that the people of Israel would make it into the promised land and that it would be the Lord who would bring them in. They are reassured that they would have bread to eat and that the Lord is giving His people a good land that will produce crops. In light of Israel's rebellion through refusing to enter the promised land, they not only needed to be reassured that Canaan was a good land, but they needed to be reassured that forgiveness is available to those who repent and believe. So in Numbers 15, verses 22 to 29, reassurance of the remission of sins is graciously given. Verses 22 to 26 deal with corporate unintentional sins, while verses 27 to 29 deal with individual unintentional sins. The kinds of sins in view here are, are not attempts to knowingly and willfully sin against God. So this is actually going to be the important contrast when we come to verse 30 in just a moment. Um, But for now, let's just keep our minds focused on this word of reassurance. The the reassurance of these verses is that when a person or the congregation recognizes that they have sinned against God, they were to go to priests and to offer an atonement for their sins so that they may be forgiven. That's the, the reassurance of verses 22 to 29. When a spotless, substitutionary sacrifice for sins was made, then the Lord would forgive His people. Look at verse 25 of Numbers 15. And the priest shall make atonement for all the congregation of the people of Israel, and they shall be forgiven. Now look at the end of verse 28. And he, this is the individual, and he shall be forgiven. What a, what a comfort and word of reassurance. It must have been to hear that their sins had been atoned for, that God's wrath against their sin had been satisfied, and that they had been forgiven. And this inevitably reminds us of our hope in Jesus Christ. Because of the shedding of Christ's blood, the remission of sins has taken place. The charges, penalty, and debt against God's people have been canceled because the punishment has been paid by Jesus Christ and through His blood. In Numbers 15, verses 21 to 29, the people of Israel and the sojourner who was with them were reassured of the remission of their sins for their unintentional sins. But in Numbers 15, verses 30 to 36, we're moving forward now in the text, we're given another kind of reassurance. Another kind of reassurance is given to those who sin with a high hand they are reassured that there will be retribution for rebellion. And that's what we're considering in our next point. This is our second point now. Second point, which is this. Retribution for rebellion. Retribution for rebellion. As we look at this, read Numbers chapter 15, verses 30 to 36. Remember, Moses and the Lord has just addressed unintentional sins. Now we get into something different. Here's the contrast. Verse 30. But the person who does anything with a high hand, whether he is native or a sojourner, reviles the Lord, and that person shall be cut off from among his people, because he has despised the word of the Lord and has broken his commandment. That person shall be utterly cut off. His iniquity shall be on him. While the people of Israel were in the wilderness, they found a man gathering sticks on the Sabbath day. And those who found him gathering sticks brought him to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation. They put him in custody because it had not been made clear what should be done to him. And the Lord said to Moses, The man shall be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him with stones outside the camp. And all the congregation brought him outside the camp and stoned him to death with stones, as the Lord commanded Moses. So you see, in contrast to those who sin unintentionally and repent of it, while trusting in the substitutionary atonement of an innocent animal, the remission of their sins, those who intentionally sin against the Lord will be punished. While unintentional sins may be pardoned, the intentional reviling of the Lord will be punished. And here we're no longer talking about sins of ignorance. No, we're talking about deliberate 
and defiant rebellion. Leviticus chapter 6 makes provision for those who deliberately sin, but openly and publicly confess and repent of it. However, that is not what seems to be in view here. What seems to be in view here is an open, blatant, knowledgeable, and unrepentant rebellion against the living God. One commentator, Baptist theologian John Gill, uh, piled up the adjectives when he was describing this kind of sin. This kind of sin, he said, flows from a proud heart, a man who is haughty, insolent, obstinate, stubborn, and self-willed. This is a sin with a purpose and design to be open and public. It displays a, a lack of reverence for God or regard for your fellow man. And consider how this sinning with a high hand is described there in verse 31. Sinning with a high hand was defiantly despising the word of the Lord. It was nothing less than deliberately breaking God's commandments. I think that those two phrases are meant to explain one another. To despise God's word is to break God's commandment. This is a, a bold defiance of the living God. And more than defiance, it is a rejection of and rebellion against the living God. This is what sinning with a high hand is. It is a practical and full-throated declaration that says, I will deny God, live as though He does not exist, and reject His rule. We need to observe how Moses describes this sin too. It's not... It's not kind of amorphous, like there's no target, the sin doesn't offend anyone. There is a target. It's God Himself. Verse 30, But the person who does anything with a high hand, whether he is native or sojourner, reviles the Lord. Sin always strikes at God. It may strike at others too, but it always strikes at God. Breaking God's commandment and despising His word is striking at His sovereignty, His authority, and His rule. It's striking at Him. And God reassures both the native and the sojourner, everyone, everyone who sins against Him in this way will be cut off and bear His iniquity. That phrase, His iniquity shall be on Him, means to communicate to us that He's going to bear the punishment that is due to this sin. How? Through being cut off. The punishment's repeated for emphasis in verse 31. That person shall be utterly cut off. Now generally speaking, when this phrase is used in the Old Testament, uh, this phrase cut off, it's applied to punishment. And what this meant is not simply that a person was sent out and barred from living within the covenant community of Israel, but it meant that a person would be put to death. Therefore, they were not only cut off from the covenant community, but they were cut off from the land of the living, as Isaiah 53, verse 8 says. The book of Exodus makes this clear, and it's, it actually kind of dovetails with what we see taking place with the execution of the Sabbath breaker in verses 32 to 36. Perhaps you're wondering what, why a man would be executed for gathering sticks on the Sabbath. What's, what's the big deal? Well, first and foremost, any sin against the holy God is deserving of death. God warned Adam in the garden not to sin and eat of the forbidden fruit. From the day in which he ate of it, he would surely die. And that's exactly what happened. Every sin is deserving of death. And every sinner, which is everyone, is deserving from being cut off from the land of the living. Still, this particular event is connected to the Sabbath, which itself reveals another truth. And let's think through this a little bit by turning to Exodus chapter 31. I want you to turn your Bibles to Exodus chapter 31. Keep one finger here. Turn to Exodus chapter 31. I want us to look at verses 12 to 17. And if you're using one of the Bibles provided, that's on page 17, 72, I believe. 72 of the Bibles provided. I want to read Exodus chapter 31, verses 12 
to 17. And the Lord said to Moses, You are to speak to the people of Israel and say, Above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths. For this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations, that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. You shall keep the Sabbath because it is holy for you. Everyone who profanes it shall be put to death. Whoever does any work on it, that soul shall be cut off from among his people. Six days shall work be done, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day shall be put to death. Therefore the people of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, observing the Sabbath throughout their generations as a covenant forever. It is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in six days the Lord made heaven and earth and on the seventh day He rested and was refreshed. Now take a look at the end of verse 15 there. The end of verse 15 stipulates the penalty for those who do not keep the Sabbath. Penalty is death. Not keeping the Sabbath would show that a person wanted to be independent of God. The Sabbath was a sign between God and Israel. It revealed their relationship. And so a Sabbath breaker revealed that he wanted to be cut off. He wanted to actually himself cut off that relationship. To put it another way, those who broke the Sabbath were expressing that they did not want to know God. They would rather know things other than God. Such disregard for the Sabbath would show that they wanted to worship and serve created things rather than the Creator. And that was but one reason why there is such a strict penalty on Sabbath breaking. So turning back to Numbers 15 then. Turning back to Numbers 15. That's page 124 of the Bibles provided. Turning back there, we can see that rejecting the Sabbath was rejecting God and His covenant. Rebelling against the Sabbath command revealed that you no longer wanted to live within the covenant community, who was identified in large part through the keeping of the Sabbath. In, in, in that light, perhaps we can see why the Lord issued the command to execute the Sabbath breaker. His sin was not ultimately about sticks, but about sliding the most holy and glorious person in the entire universe. His gathering wood revealed that He hated and despised and reviled and mocked the living God. In our modern sensibilities, we give too much sympathy to this stick collector. He was not as innocent as we might be tempted to suppose. Here was a man who revealed by his sinning with a high hand that he wanted nothing to do with his Creator and Covenant Lord. He wanted nothing to do with the one who gave him life and breath. And he wanted no part in the covenant community. And it is sobering to think that the Lord was not only giving this man what he deserved, but that he was also giving him what he wanted. In the command for the congregation to execute this man, they were being reassured that there would be retribution for rebellion. Now, if you think that this is terrifying, then you need to hear what the writer to the Hebrews says in the New Testament. In Hebrews chapter 10, verses 26 to 29, we read this. For if we go on sinning deliberately, after receiving knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? Friends, 
Brothers and sisters in Christ, let's recognize that these verses about sinning with a high hand, deliberately and defiantly sinning, are included in the book of Numbers to warn the people of Israel. And if part of their aim was to warn the people of Israel, then surely we should hear and heed their warning too. It is more than safe to assume that this Sabbath breaker was unrepentant and that he faced the punishment of God through the congregation of Israel for his persistence in sin, for his unrepentant stance toward God. God has not called the New Testament church, He's not called our church to continue and carry on this practice of putting unrepentant members of the covenant community to death. We are not going to walk out those doors and go out into the street and stone some member of our congregation. We are not going to do that. We just repeat that. We're not going to do that. The Lord has not called us to do that. Having said that, though that does not continue in the New Covenant era, there is a kind of cutting off that the New Testament church is positively commanded by God to practice. Each local church bears the responsibility to remove from its body those members who continue and persist in unrepentant sin. The church is called to cut them off from the Lord's table. We learn that from Matthew chapter 18 and from 1 Corinthians 5. The church is called to cut off from the table of the Lord those who persist in unrepentant sin for three reasons. First, for the good of the sinner's soul. So that Lord willing, he or she might be saved. Excommunication. Barring someone from communing at the table of the Lord. Excommunication may awaken the person to the danger of their sin and lead them to repentance. That seems to be what happened with that man who was excommunicated or Paul instructed the, the church in uh, Corinth in 1 Corinthians 5. He instructed that man who was in unrepentant sin. He instructed that church to put, them, put him out of their body. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 6, it seems like that man may have been restored to fellowship. That perhaps that act of that congregation awoken him to the danger that he was living in by persisting in sin. And he repented and perhaps trusted in Christ. First, the church is called to practice excommunication for the good of the sinner's soul. Second, the church is called to obey Jesus and cut off from the table of the Lord those who persist in unrepentant sin for the good of the body itself, for the good of the church body. The Apostle Paul rightly said that a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Sin spreads like gangrene, and for the health and well-being of the church body, sadly, sometimes it must be cut out and cut off. Thirdly, third reason that the church is to practice excommunication thirdly for the glory of the name of Jesus Christ local churches are called to cut off from the table of the Lord those who continue on in unrepentant sin a person as a member of a local church is saying I identify with Jesus Christ I'm a disciple of Jesus Christ and we're allowing them to continue to claim that mantle as long as we allow that person who is persisting in unrepentant sin to keep claiming that they're a Christian and a member of our church. When, when we as a church partake of the Lord's Supper this evening, we will stand up and we will renew our covenant with each other. And when we do that, we are visibly identifying ourselves as followers of Jesus. It's slightly awkward for, for visitors. We understand that and we're sorry about that. But what we're doing is we're saying, these are the people who are trying to follow Jesus Christ. These are the people who are trying to trust Him and walk by faith each day. We are testifying and declaring to the world that we belong to Jesus Christ and are endeavoring to live like Him. We represent Him, Jesus, on this earth. 
And when a member of our body persists in unrepentant sin and we say nothing about it, we are allowing that person to give a false witness to the world about what it means to follow Jesus. We're allowing that person to blemish the glorious name of Jesus. And so if we care about the name of Jesus, we have to practice cutting those off who would persist in unrepentant sin. Now the truth is, is that each and every one of us here this morning needs to repent. Every member of this congregation and every non-member of this congregation needs to repent. Sadly, we have all pulled the name of Christ through the mud. We, have all, we all have sins to repent of. And you might be here this morning and you might be wondering to yourself, I'm struggling to repent of my sin. Am, am I the man who is sinning with a high hand? Should I be cut off from the Lord and from His people? If you are struggling with your sin, then I have hope that the Spirit of Christ is at work in you. That struggle with sin, I trust, is a sign of the Spirit at work in you. If, however, you are not struggling, if you feel no sorrow for your sin, then you need to pray and repent and seek the Lord. We all ought to confess our sins and receive help from one another. We need help from one another so that we don't become the man who sins with a high hand. Hear and heed this exhortation from James chapter 5, verse 16. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. If you are struggling with specific sins that you want to overcome by the grace of God, don't hide them. Confess them. Confess them to another mature and loving brother or sister in Christ. Get together with someone for lunch or coffee. Confess your struggles to your small group. Don't delay. Do it this week. So often we are afraid to confess our sins because we fear judgment from others. The truth is, is that those whom we're confessing our sins to are also sinners. And frankly, they've probably struggled with some of the sins that you're struggling with. Satan wants us to feel unique. As though no one in the world has ever gone through what we're going through. Satan uses isolation in devious, disastrous, and dangerous ways. Don't listen to his lies and don't struggle alone. We need to confess our sins to one another and receive help and encouragement. Do you know what comes before, comes right before that terrifying passage that I read from Hebrews chapter 10, verses 26 to 29? Hebrews 10. 24 and 25, which reads, And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. That is what we need. We need others to help guard us from persisting in sin. We need one another to persevere. Come back tonight and hear our brother Sam Webb preach to us from Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 to 2, about our need to persevere and run the race of faith with joy. We know in our hearts that we deserve to be cut off from God and from His people. But the good news of the Bible is, is that Jesus was cut off from the land of the living for all of those who would ever turn from their sins and place their faith in Him. I don't know if you caught this, but if you look at verse 36, do you see where this man was taken to be executed? He was taken outside the camp. And do you know where Jesus suffered and died 
for commandment breakers like you and me. He suffered outside the city of Jerusalem. Here is how Hebrews chapter 13 verse 12 puts it. Jesus suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Friend, if you're here this morning and and you're not a, a believer or follower of Jesus Christ, then I want to invite you to come to him in faith today. Unlike uh, you and me, everyone else, everyone else here this morning, we, we've all sinned. Unlike you and me and everyone else here, Jesus is not. Jesus has been perfectly righteous. He never broke God's command. He never reviled His word. He was without sin, as 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says. Because you and I have sinned against the eternal, holy, just, and good God, we deserve to be punished for all eternity for our sins. But the good news is that God sent His one and only Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to earth. The eternal Son of God took flesh to Himself and He became a man. Jesus, being fully God and fully man, lived the perfect life of obedience to God the Father that we have not lived. And yet He died for commandment breakers like you and me. He stood in our place was crucified and put to death outside the camp for our sins, for the sins of all of those who had ever turned from their sins and placed their faith in Him. Jesus died. He was cut off from the land of the living, just as Isaiah 53 prophesied and predicted about Him. And yet, three days after His death, God raised Him from the dead. Jesus was vindicated and His resurrection proved that His death on behalf of of repenting sinners was acceptable in God's sight. Jesus died outside the camp. He was cut off so we wouldn't have to be. And His resurrection proves if we trust in Him, we will not be cut off from the living God, but brought into His heavenly promised land. Friend, I urge you to come to the Lord Jesus Christ, put your faith in Him today, and believe that He suffered and died for you and for your sins. Believe that He was raised for you. And believe that He can lead you home to God the Father. And if you want to know more about what it means that Jesus was cut off for you so that you wouldn't have to be cut off from God's loving presence, for all eternity, then please come and find me at the door after the service. Talk with your friend or family member that you came here with this morning. Talk with a, a, a member of this church. There's nothing more important that we'd love to talk to you about this morning than this good news that Jesus has died for sinners like us so that we might be saved from God's wrath. Jesus is a great Savior. And you know, if you can believe it, I still think that these verses about this sinning with a high hand and the execution of a Sabbath breaker, I think that these verses actually constitute a word of reassurance from God to His people. Yes, in the command for the congregation to execute this Sabbath breaker, the, the people of Israel being reassured that there would be retribution for rebellion, but they were being reassured of another thing too. The Lord actually cared about His covenant and about His covenant people. He cared about His relationship with them, which is why He desired that the sign of the covenant between He and Israel be preserved. He cared about His relationship with them and He wanted them to remember that they belonged to Him. He wanted them to remember Him and His commands. And this is what we turn to consider and think about in our third and final point. Remember your God. Remember your God. As we think about this, read Numbers chapter 15 verses 37 to 41. Verse 37. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel and tell them to make tassels on the corners of their garments throughout their generations and to put a cord of blue on the tassel of each corner. And it should be a tassel for you to look at and remember all the commandments of the Lord. To do them. Not to follow your own heart. 
and your own eyes, which you are inclined to whore after. So you shall remember and do all my commandments and be holy to your God. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord your God. These verses revolve around the idea that the Lord and His commands are to be remembered. Uh, these verses even make clear that the Lord provides a means for this remembering, the tassels. He, he provides a reason for this remembering, the natural inclinations of Israel's heart and the motivations for this remembering, that Israel belongs to God. So I want to unpack those three ideas, these three main components in these verses. The means for remembering, the reason for remembering, and the, the, the motivation for Israel's remembering. In verses 30, 38 and 39, we're introduced to a new regulation and strategy for remembering God's laws. Tassels on the corners of garments. This was likely a fabric embellishment of some kind with a, a blue cord attached to the tassel itself. It's hard to say with absolute certainty what the color of blue represented, but in the book of Numbers itself, we do know that blue was used inside the tabernacle and specifically the most holy place. It's the place uh, where the Lord dwelt as His earthly throne room, as the King of the universe. Given what we know from the text that these tassels and cords were meant to remind the people of Israel of the Holy God and His holy commands for the purpose of encouraging holiness, I think we can safely say and conclude that the blue cord and the tassels were not only meant to remind Israel of God's laws, but for reminding the people of Israel that they were God's people under God's kingly rule. In the New Testament, we're not commanded to attach things to our garments to remind us of the commands of Jesus Christ. We're not told that Christians are to wear cords. Neckties are not the, the modern-day tassels for Christian men. Cross necklaces are not the modern-day tassels for Christian women. There's nothing wrong with neckties or, or, or necklaces. But they're not what we're prescribed to do in the New Testament. Instead, we're giving something much better in the New Covenant era. We've been given the Spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ who writes God's law upon our hearts. He brings God's Word and the commands of Christ to our minds. And He's also given us means, other means for remembering God's Word available to us according to the New Testament. We, we actually we have God's Word. We have copies of God's Word. And so we should read it. We have prayer. And so we should plead with God to bring His commands to our minds and give us a will to do them. We have God's people. We have each other who can remind us of God's commands. And we have this gathering that the Lord has ordained week in and week out where we can corporately let the Word of Christ dwell in us richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in our hearts to God. I don't know if you, you know that, but that's what we do when we're singing, when we're praying, when we're reading God's Word together. We are reminding one another of the truth of God's Word. And we need to be reminded, just like Israel needed to be reminded. But why did Israel need such a reminder? What was a reason that they needed to be reminded? Well, at one level, we could answer this question without verse 39. Because the people of Israel are inclined to rebel against the commands of the Lord. We know what happened in Numbers 13 and 14. When the people of Israel rebelled against the Lord's command to enter the promised land, the Lord said, go. And the people of Israel said, no, we're not going to go. No. Still, verse 39 helps us to see Israel's rebellion, I think, on a deeper level. Why do the people of Israel rebel and disobey? The people of Israel disobeyed because they followed after the desires of their hearts and eyes. Why do we do the things we want to do, that we do? Why, why do we do the things that we do? Because the heart wants what it wants. Because we follow after our hearts and our eyes. Apart from God's grace, our hearts don't, do not, our hearts do not want God. And they do not want to follow after His commands. The natural state of the human heart is corrupt 
and inclined to rebel against the living God. Some, some years ago, I, um, I went to hear a local folk musician uh, play a show near my university. I was an undergraduate student at the time, and during this show, this artist paused to introduce the, the next song. You know, if you've ever been to concerts, they like start noodling, they're explaining what they're going to sing about next. So th that's what this, uh, uh, this folk artist was doing. And she was explaining um, that essentially she, she wrote this song because too often we are confronted with the, the evil and the bad things that are going on in the world. She felt like we need to remind ourselves more often that people are fundamentally good. So it was a song about people actually being fundamentally good, essentially. That was the, the thrust of the song. And we, we needed to be reminded of that. You know, so, so that, that, that thought is, is that when you get right down to the bottom layer of everything, people are basically good. They just sometimes err, do bad things. That, that's the basic assumption of our world and culture. So I don't, I don't think she was saying anything radical saying that saying that people are essentially good. But he, here is the sad and sobering truth. People are not essentially good. Uh, people are essentially bad. Psalm 14, verses 1 to 3 says this, There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. And the Apostle Paul in the New Testament confirms this teaching in Romans, in Romans 3. There's not one part of our being which has not been tainted and corrupted by the fall of Adam. Having said that, we as human beings are not as depraved as we could be. So we're, we're, we're bad, we're fundamentally bad, but we're not as bad as we could be. We will from time to time do good. And that is a result of being made in the image of God. However, the truth of the Bible is that by nature, our hearts are utterly <coughs> void of that holiness required by the law of God. And that we are positively inclined toward evil. We need to be saved from sin, saved from ourselves. Brothers and sisters, this is why we need the regenerating work of the Spirit in our lives. And this is, yet again, reason for us to rejoice that we live under the new and better covenant through Christ. It is only through the work of the Holy Spirit that we can even hope to remember and do the commandments of Christ. It is only through the work of the Holy Spirit that the inclinations of our heart can be changed and we can actually pursue being holy to God. Praise God for the work of the Spirit in our lives and pray that He would continue to work in our hearts and lives. But what is it that will motivate the people of Israel to be holy to God? What is it that should motivate you to live in holiness toward God? I know about you, but I absolutely love how Numbers 15 closes. Read Numbers chapter 15, verse 41, the last, last verse. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord your God. Don't you just love that double declaration? I am the Lord your God. To a people who have just been instructed to wander in the wilderness for the next 40 years, don't you see how this word of reassurance would be a comfort to them? God is not going to let them wander alone in the wilderness. He has bound Himself to them. He is Israel's God. In fact, it was the very purpose for which He brought them out of Egypt. That's what he says. I brought you out of Egypt to be your God. He saved and rescued them from slavery in Egypt to be their God. And he was not going to leave them or forsake them. Israel needed to remember that Yahweh was their God. And so he, he gave 
this divine declaration twice, right? So when I repeat, this is the next point that we're going to be setting in our sermon. I give you the point, I say it again. I want you to remember it. The Lord says it twice. He wants His people to remember this. I am the Lord, your God. I am, I am binding myself to you. I am committing myself to you. This reminder from God Himself was the motivation for hearing and heeding God's commands. This is the indicative which gives God's people energy and joy to carry out His imperative. In other words, Israel ought to remember and keep God's commands because they belong to God. Because they belong to the great I Am. Do you love that? I am the Lord your God. I think the Lord's signaling to His people, I am the Lord your God. I'm Yahweh. And this is where I want us to conclude. I want us to conclude by reflecting on the truth that this is our same position in Jesus Christ. Israel has been brought out of the land of Egypt, out of slavery, because God has purposed to be their God. Likewise, Jesus has brought us, rescued us, and redeemed us from slavery to sin so that He might be our God. Brothers and sisters, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20, we're told that we are not our own, for we've been bought with a price. Well, if we are not our own, who do we belong to? The one who bought us. And who is that? It's Jesus. We belong to Jesus. He purchased us with His own blood. Acts chapter 20, verse 28. We are to live holy lives unto God. We are to resist the devil and flee from him. We are to keep God's commands. Not because our position or our salvation is uncertain, but because it is certain. Remember Christ. And remember that Jesus will give His people what He has promised. He will give His people what He has promised. He will bring us into the promised land of heaven because we belong to Him. And He calls us to remember that He has declared Himself to be our God. That He has redeemed us from slavery for the very purpose of being our God. Christian, remember that you are not your own, but that you belong to Jesus. Let's pray together.